And friends, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. Would love for you to open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. If you get to Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, go back to the left. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible. Uh, folks are walking around right now, passing those out. And if you have one of those house Bibles, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, is on page 542, 542. A couple of things before we jump in, I want to make sure that we're all aware of and understand as best we can. Um, on August 1st, we're asking that all those serving in any capacity, whether in the children's ministry, in our uh, music team, or in connections, production, wherever it might be, that we all be members. This is a way of making sure that everyone who is serving is cared for as best we possibly can care for one another, and that there's a level of accountability and unity on all of our teams about what it means to be the church, what it means to be serving in those various roles. Uh, and secondly, August 18th, we are welcoming children into the gathering. For some of us in sort of like a Western first uh, world context, this is a novel idea. I'd like to suggest to you 95% of the churches in the world welcome children as soon as the church started. We were the ones that came up with the idea to like move them into their spaces. Um, and so what we're going to be doing is welcoming children in the gathering two years and older, two years and older until the sermon so that they can see mom and daddy cry in repentance to Jesus. They can see mom and daddy reading the scriptures, but also they can see other adults lifting their hands, singing and making much of Jesus. I was just sharing with somebody this week, one of the most impressionable things for me as a young kid coming up in the church was not all of the lessons, those I'm, though I'm sure those things really got deeply seated in my heart and mind. It was coming into the gathering with my mom laying on her lap and listening to my dad preach. Some of the sweetest moments were because I was in the gathering with my mom or dad, because there was some familial understanding that we followed and loved Jesus. Now, all families are different. That's why no one at Church in the Square is on their own as it comes to family. Whether you have children of your own or not, we all have children as the church. Therefore, we all take responsibility and joy in their development. Mom and dad are the primary disciplers, and it's our joy to support them in this. August 18th, get ready. The kids are coming, and they're going to teach us how to worship Jesus. Amen? Amen. Hey, uh, Jennifer Crocker, uh, a psychologist at the University of Michigan Institute of Social Research, surveyed 600 college freshmen. She compared their levels of self-esteem. Are you ready for this? Three different times over the course of their first year in college, before they came to school, in the middle of their education, and then after their first year. And at the end of that concluding spring semester, she says this about her research. When students were asked about what they based their self-worth on, more than 80% said academic competence, 77% said their family's support, 66% said doing better than others, and 65%, 70% of which were women, said their appearance. After comparing the data, Crocker concluded, and, here, and I quote, that some students feel motivated to do well in academics, but having their self-worth on the line doesn't help their performance. Having their self-worth on the line does not increase their academic performance. And she further observed, we really think that if people could adopt goals not focused on their self-esteem, are you ready, millennials, but on something larger than their self, 
such as, such as what they can create and contribute to others, then they would be less susceptible to the negative effects of pursuing self-esteem. Crocker says it's about having a goal bigger than yourself. To be sure, some of these conclusions, you're like, that's obvious. I learned that like infinity times already. I already know that that's true. So though I think that we would speculate that some of this is really familiar information, the question then for us is why, in familiar information, do we constantly fall into the exact same trap? Do we constantly fall into a vision of self-worth that is focused on self? We set our vision and our worth upon outcomes at work, the well-being of our children, our appearance, our likability, the stability of relationships, many good things. All things which might be as well described as academic competence or excelling in school. They function similarly within our hearts. We regularly derive self-worth, from what we can accomplish and not from who we actually are. But here's the paradox, I think, revealed in this research and what is understood from us experientially. Self-worth is actually not about yourself. Understanding self-worth is not about yourself. That's really noteworthy. This is what the research revealed, and I think it's what we know instinctively. When we focus on ourselves, not others, not a larger vision of the world, we actually miss ourselves. We actually build a life that is actually quite self-destructive. Now, this sounds really nice, but what does all of this mean? You, You are extraordinarily valuable, You, individually, let me speak to you directly as your friend, as a pastor, as one of the elders here. You are extraordinarily valuable, but not for the reasons you often believe. Not for the reasons that you often believe. See, Scripture is clear. Not only are we given ontological or by nature value, nature of being, distinct as God's prized creation, but then he gives us a purpose, an office, a role that is extraordinary, to have dominion over God's world. Therefore, in being and in purpose, the Lord has set humanity apart with a distinct value and a distinct worth. Jesus is also very clear with his own words about what it means to take hold of the fullness of life and our understanding of self when he said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. In other words, focus on your life and you'll lose it. Lose your life and you'll find it. So how do we take hold of this life? How do we embrace this kind of life that is truly life in a world that is riddled with false senses of self and of worth? I think Acts 20 will help guide our thinking in this. Here are the very words of God, Acts chapter 20, verse 17 and following. Now from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jew and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. 
But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of grace, of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and not sparing the flock. And from among your, you, uh, excuse me, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we have gathered because of your word. We have acknowledged that you call us by your word. We have sung to your glory and out of worship because of what your word teaches us and instructs us about who we are as worshipers. We've confessed our sin because your, your word exposes sin in us. And now we, we come and we have, we've, we've been uh, affirmed, we've been admonished, we've been encouraged by your word. And so we pray now, Father, would you instruct us in our hearts, in our minds, in our whole beings about what is true, what is beautiful, who you are, what you're like, what you're up to. God, would you give us a vision for you, yourself, the God of the universe? Some of us are coming today. We've been beaten up at work, in our family life, perhaps in our own mind. Would you encourage these, my brothers and sisters? Would you build them up? Some of us are coming riddled with pride, Father, believing that somehow we did so much good yesterday that we put you on the hook to give us breath again today. Forgive us, God, and humble us. We thank you that your word does both of those things. That if we are sorrowful and shamed, that you clothe us in righteousness and you build us up. If we are arrogant and self-righteous, you make us humble by your grace. And so, God, we ask that you would knit us together by your word, that you would make us a people, that we might be used for your glory in our families, in our world, in our vocations, and in our neighborhood, we ask. We ask all of this and a thousand other things that don't even come to our mind that you will do in these next few moments as we gather and throughout our week. We ask all of that in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. So Paul is in Miletus, about 30 miles 
from Ephesus. Miletus was an old city. It was a prosperous city. This was a place that had a history in the ancient world. And so Paul is in this particular context, and he reaches out to the elders in Ephesus. And he does something that he, hasn't, he has rarely done. In fact, we don't have a record of him doing this. Instead of going to someone, he is inviting the entire elder team of, of Ephesus to come and meet him in Miletus, to have concert and time with him there. So he doesn't go to them. He invites them to come down. Perhaps Paul felt safer in Miletus. He had faced some serious affliction and persecution in Ephesus. Uh, He was likely hurried in his way to go to Jerusalem, as we'll find out in a minute. Nevertheless, for whatever reason, he invites the Ephesian elders to come to Miletus. And here's what takes place in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And particularly, he uses that word elders. If you, re- if you remember, one of the things that Paul does in his first missionary journey is that he sets up new churches. But he doesn't just bring people together and walk away. He doesn't just start a church in that he brings people together. He also gives this charter to local leadership to begin to take on eldership, this role of oversight and of teaching. And so Paul is not writing, hear this, to a bunch of people he doesn't know what they're doing or what they're supposed to do. He has helped to orchestrate and organize this particular relationship between the local church and elders. In fact, his young protege, Timothy, he would write later to about how to put this elder team together. One of Timothy's jobs in Ephesus was to put and to call together qualified elders. And so there are a number of different words that come through the New Testament, but this particular word, elder, is used. That distinct role in the church, the word for shepherd, poimen might be used, or the word for overseer, uh, epicasso. And that particular word, though used in varying different ways, sort of pales in the numeric way that elder is used, or presbytos, where we get our word for Presbyterian. It is the most common distinct word given to local church leadership, and it means, as we have tried to use it regularly, elder. One of the reasons that we don't have pastors and elders, but all of us are taking on the office in in form and function in elder, myself, Chad, Mike, and Juan, is because we believe that the power and clarity that this word gives our responsibility is really helpful See, without question, Jesus, let's not get it twisted, Jesus is the senior leader of our church. Jesus is the lead pastor. He's the chief shepherd. Peter makes this really clear in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. He says this, For we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Don't get it twisted. I am not the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Neither is Mike, neither is Juan, neither is Chad, nor the collection or company of our elder team. We are not first and foremost the source and substance and foundation of your faith. And that deserves a big amen from me, a big amen from my wife, and a big amen from anybody who knows me, and therefore it should be a big amen for us as an entire church. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the founder of the church. Therefore, he should be worshipped. He should be revered as the lead pastor, the head elder, the primary overseer and caregiver of us, his church. See, whenever a human leader, whether by their own will or the will of the people, begins to usurp that primary role and power of Jesus' centrality over his people, that leads to all kinds of devastation, and we are liable for treason because this is not our church. This is his church. 
However, in order and by his will and authority, in order to carry out the function of the church, the Lord has seen fit through Paul and Timothy and others to institute this office of eldership to oversee the local church. And therefore, Paul is calling this leadership team to himself to encourage them, to build them up, to instruct them. And so this is the team that Paul brings together in Acts chapter 20. And so this is instructive for us as a church to hear how and what Paul communicates to local elder leadership and for us as elders in particular about what Paul is communicating to us as leaders of the local church. Look at verse 18 through 21 says this. And when they came to him, those elders coming to Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Verse 20, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding the moment, it's not surprising for us to hear that Paul had a lot to say. This is a rare opportunity. It's a rare moment. It's a rare gathering of people. It's in fact the clearest and longest address that Paul gives directly to Christians, to only a group of Christians, in particular a group of Christian leaders and elders. So this is a rare moment for us to read about. And what Paul begins and what he draws most attention to at the start is his relationship with them. In other words, he says, you know me. You know me. You know what it was like. We've been in this together. And this is what we've learned about Paul During his time, he'll now summarize his entire gospel work. As we've been reading through Acts 18 and 19 in particular, leading up and into Ephesus and on into chapter 20, we've read about what Paul is now going to summarize. The overarching claim that Paul will make is that I serve the Lord with humility. What a joy it would be after whatever God has called you to do, that the summary that you could give of that calling was that I serve the Lord with humility. Paul says this in verse 19. And the word humble, we should understand, means to be brought low, close to the ground, close to the terrain. It's the same word that Luke uses when he's referring back to Isaiah 40, verse 3, when he says, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. It shall be humbled. So how how did Paul, the apostle, lower himself as he served? Well, it's listed there. Look back through those particular verses. It says that he served with tears. He served with trials. He served without shrinking back. He served by teaching in public. He served by teaching in private. He served with humility by preaching to all peoples, not just those he thought would be easy to communicate with. He served by preaching the same message of repentance and faith through it all. He summarizes every detail of his ministry underneath the heading, serve the Lord with humility. Now, the background story in all of Acts, as we have become more familiar, is this persecution that is coming from Jewish people, particularly the religious elite. So in the foreground, the story of Acts is the institution of the local church, of God's church being called, planted throughout different areas of Asia Minor, different cities in Asia Minor. Then in the background to all of that is opposition. This is really helpful for us because when we start in this journey, we're almost a year into this journey of church in the square, we like to just think about what's in the foreground, institution starting a new church. In the background, though, is spiritual warfare, persecution, difficulty, repentance, sin, idolatry. That's not the stuff that you, like, put up on Facebook as a marketing ploy, right? It's not something, come to our church, you'll crush all of your idols, 
right? Come to our church. No sin will be laid bare. We're going to know everything about you. The crowd gets smaller and smaller. But what if that's actually the point? What if the way in which the church is instituted is what takes place through persecution and it can't take place any other way? Through suffering, through pain, through confession. See, I've got to confess to you. I thought we could get this thing done in a nice, neat, tucked in kind of way. No, it doesn't have to cost anybody anything. But at the end of the day, it looks like it constantly costs the church everything. And so Paul is bringing together some people who know this. He says, I've cried with you, I've suffered with you, I've gone through pain, because that's what's been happening the entire time. Again, this shouldn't be a surprise to us, because is not the ministry of Jesus one where the cross is in the foreground? To be sure, we like to say he came to forgave sins, but he forgave sins by dying on a cross, by enduring affliction and suffering and pain, ending with an ironically frustrating and mean characterization of him as king of the Jews not lauding his glory, but mocking his title as Lord of all. After Paul gives this account of his time in Ephesus, he explains to his uh, fellow elders why he has to go to Jerusalem, so look, or that he will do that. So look at verse 22, similar pathway that Jesus took. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except, don't you love this caveat, that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. He's like, I don't exactly know what's going to happen in Jerusalem or why the Spirit wants me to go there, but I know I'm going to be imprisoned and I know I'm going to go through affliction. So God bless you as you go. Have a good day. Just wanted to let you know that's why I'm going. This is a really important juxtaposition and tension here because Paul gives full credence. The Spirit of God is leading me and it's going to hurt. Isn't it true we think that the Spirit of God's leading me then he'll keep me from hurt and I won't go through hurt. That's actually evidence that the Spirit of God has taken care of me, right? All of our praise reports when we come to our group. By the way, if you don't know what a praise report, the Lord has saved you from some Christian culture, so just endure for just a second, right? This praise report that you come to the group, something that you want to celebrate about what God has done, it never includes suffering, Always is like, it stopped suffering and getting hard, and I can now know that I'll avoid the difficult things that I thought were before me. Paul is actually coming to them and saying, that's not a God that I know about. The God I know about leads me to very difficult places. He says he's even constrained by it. That word means that he's bound up in it, that the Spirit of God. Paul, when he has this opportunity to go to Jerusalem, he doesn't do what I often do. What do I think about that? What will that be like, and does that seem like a good idea? Paul is thinking the Spirit of God's thoughts. He is moving at the will of the Spirit. So his question is not what do I think, but what does the Spirit desire? What does the Spirit desire? Paul is not reflecting on his wishes, his thoughts, his feelings, because he already knows his responsibility. His job is to obey the Spirit of God. It seems a, bit a lot of tension around that, though. Something begins to happen in our own worldview, our own understanding, I think. See, Paul is following the direction of the Spirit, but it leads him, the Spirit of God leads him right into suffering. It reminds us, doesn't it, of Jesus, baptized in Matthew 3, led into the wilderness in Matthew 4. Hear this, the last verse of Matthew chapter 3, the, verse, the first verse of Matthew chapter 4, the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Next verse. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. From my beloved son to led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted. 
Is that your vision of God? It's not one that makes me feel comfortable. See, what begins to happen here is Paul's understanding and obedience to the Spirit begins to completely upend my view of God. Right? Pastor, get us, preach, get us to Psalm 23. He leads me beside quiet waters and restores my soul. Great. Psalm 23 exists, but so does Acts 20. So does Matthew 3 and Matthew 4, right? So let's not take the easy road out by quoting another verse that we heard one time. We didn't even know it was Matthew 23. We just thought, like, that's an idea about God that I liked a little bit better. In both Acts and Matthew, what we see is a picture of a God who loves us and yet a God who leads us into difficulty, into suffering, into pain. See, Paul's explanation of the Holy Spirit and Jesus' own experience from baptism to temptation completely undoes my comfortable vision of God because I wonder, and I wonder along with you, if my vision of God says much more about what I think about myself than what I know to be true about him. That often my vision of God says much more about what I think about myself than what I know to be true about him. This was so familiar to Jesus that affliction and obedience come hand in hand, but this is what a humble life produces. A humble life produces a life that is obedient even to the point of cost. John Dixon, an Australian academic in his book, Humilitas, which is an entire history of humility, defines humility this way. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. You see, if our goal in life is preservation, we'll follow God, but only to the point of cost. We'll follow God, we'll come to church, we'll pray, we'll do the Jesus things, right? If that's what we want to do, simply preserve our life. However, if our aim is to glorify God, to be united with Christ in fulfilling his will and taking hold of the life that is truly life, then we will obey his word no matter the cost will live with humility. The transformative difference between the two ways of living is humility. When we are humble, we follow and obey despite the information that we lack, what we might have or don't, despite the difficulty, despite the suffering, despite what's up ahead, because we trust God more than we trust even our own vision about what obstacles are in the way. I think this is what's going on in Ephesians chapter 20. This is not, is this not like Mark the entire ministry of Paul? This guy does crazy things. Remember when he gets kicked out of Antioch and the next, or um, Iconium and the next thing that he does is what? And Lystra and goes back to that city? He goes back to all of these cities where he almost dies. Just be like, your approval rating's not real high there. You may want to focus somewhere else. So how is this kind of humility cultivated? What's been going on, not just in Paul's life, but this is the distinguishing mark of the ministry of Jesus. How can we take hold of this kind of humble posture? I think Paul gives us further understanding in verse 24. Because it really comes down to what we value. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
Paul demonstrates something that, is, that very much creates like this sandpaper-like tension with our modern sensibility. Did you hear what he just said about his own life? I have no value. It is of no value, and it's not precious to me. He doesn't value his own life supremely. In other words, his safety, security, pleasure, and comfort are not central to his decision-making. Jeremy Taylor was often called the Shakespeare of the divines because of his ability to merge poetry and theology. And he defines humility this way, which I think complements John Dixon really well. He says that humility is an accurate view of yourself before God. It's an accurate view of yourself before God. In other words, Paul is not dismissing himself as worthless in and of himself. What does he do? He compares it with what it means to finish the course before him in order to glorify and testify to Jesus. In comparison to fulfilling what God has called him to do, his life is of no value and is not precious to him. See, in other words, he is not supremely valuing his life because he is supremely valuing Jesus. And you can't do both. Paul is supremely valuing Jesus. This was the hallmark of his ministry. And so what was his ministry? What did he do? He was called to testify to the gospel is what he said. Not only so, he was to proclaim the kingdom. He was called to declare the whole counsel of God. In other words, like a great preacher, he says the exact same thing three different times in just a little bit of different ways, right? So that by the end we go, oh, that's what the ministry was. It's to proclaim Jesus to announce the gospel. So do you see, when we value our lives, we will not risk them. We will protect them at all costs. But when we value Jesus, we will risk anything. We will lay down anything at the altar of his glory. To live this way, though, we must first and foremost supremely value God. Here's our great issue. As 21st century modern Christians, there's a lot of things for us to value. And a lot of things telling us to value them because it's a short way and it's a hidden way to really just value myself. Because this all sounds nice, right? Like supremely value Jesus, great. I've heard this one before, go sacrifice it all for him. But I want to explain to us why we don't do that. It's because we don't know who God is and we don't value him rightly. So hear this, God is supremely valuable. Hear this further still. His value is not contingent upon us. Because usually when, I, when we hear that God is valuable, we think what that means is that he is valuable to me. That he is valuable to me. He is not valuable because he is valuable to us. See, if you do not value God, it doesn't change his value. If you do not honor him rightly, it doesn't change his honor. A lot of things in life, if we collectively decide that is no longer precious and valuable, it's no longer precious and valuable. The stock market goes through, gold goes down. We just decide it's no longer valuable to us, therefore its value goes down. God is not like that. He is supremely valuable because he is supreme. He, is, he sets the market on worth. He is the epicenter of worthiness, of value, and preciousness. The scriptures over and over again speak of a kind of value that is not waiting for your response to validate it or to affirm it. It just is. He is valuable, therefore he is valuable to you. 
God is glorious. This is how we summarize his worth and beauty, his value, his worth, his laudableness, his worshipfulness, and all that he is is summarized in this wonderful word, glory. When we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of his worth. We are speaking of his beauty. We are speaking of his truth, of his grace, of all of his attributes being put on full display. And sometimes you're sensing it and seeing it, but can't wait. you can't quite put your finger on it. The glory of God is on display when we look at creation and see the sunrise, but it's also on display when that cup of coffee is just right, because that's good news for the soul too. Or tea, let's be inclusive here, or tea. Whenever that is made, steeped just the right way, there is something of glory that we see in that. When you get a great night's sleep and feel completely refreshed, yes, that is good for your body, but it speaks to a greater and deeper rest that only a supreme being can give you. See, everything whispers the supremacy of God. He is transcendently glorious. He's not waiting for our response, and yet when we finally see his worth and his beauty, there is much more to enjoy. See, in comparison to our own value, he overwhelms us, and in relationship, we can treasure and understand this joy. But in juxtaposing our own being with his, I think we see this an even brighter display. See, there's nowhere you can go where God doesn't already reside eternally. There's no pace that you can live at that you can outrun God. There is no thought you can think which he didn't spark in you and already fully understands inside and out. There is no problem you face which he cannot immediately be the solution. There is no beauty you can enjoy which he does not completely overwhelm in the light of his majesty. There is no weight you can carry which he cannot lift without breaking a sweat. There is no love you desire which he does not satisfy. There is no trouble that you face which he not, gives more trouble to. There is no fear he can't conquer, no sorrow he can't wipe away, no sin he can't cover, no shame he can't wash, no iniquity he can't erase, no thirst he can't quench, no hunger he can't satisfy, no prize he can't attain, no addiction he cannot break because he's just that valuable. I wish I could preach it to you. I'm doing my level best. You see, he is not valuable because you value him. He is valuable, therefore value him. Therefore, honor him rightly. He is not precious because we say he is. He is precious, therefore shout it from the rooftops. God is overall. God is in control of all. God is everywhere. He is all-knowing. He is beautiful. He is glorious. He is all-powerful. I wish I could introduce you to him. He is supremely glorious. And here's where we have to really wrestle with our soul, church, because if that's true, why do we value our lives so much? Despite this overwhelming evidence of his worth, we do not rightly value him. We continue to see our value, or rather his value, through the lens of self-value. Let, let, me, let me help us understand a little bit more of this so that we can hear his gospel truth penetrate our hearts this morning. In other words, we understand the worth of God in terms of how he enriches our lives and enriches my values, increases my stock. Therefore, if I value children, God is as valuable to me as he gives me children and protects them. If I value money, God is as valuable to me to the degree he makes me financially prosperous and keeps me that way. 
If I value romantic affection, God is valuable to me to the extent that he gives and sustains my version of romantic bliss. And it is not that he is unable to deliver children and their protection. It's not that he is unable to make you prosperous. It's not that he is unable to give you romantic affection in this life. The problem is none of those are primary. None of those are supreme. And therefore, when we give credit to God, where we worship and esteem his value based on what he gives us, all we are revealing is that we do not value him. We only value what we believe he will give us. It's not that he's unable. It's that he's so much more worthy than that. In other words, when we come to God because God gives us something, or because God is valuable to us merely because of something else that we value, we don't value him. We ultimately are valuing ourselves. This is not a bad habit. We excuse a lot of sin and just going, ah, that's too bad. We'll try harder next time. That's sinful. That's sinful. That's wrong. That's broken. It's evil. And we ought to repent of that church. God, right now we repent that this is true of our hearts. Forgive us. You see, when the gospel really takes hold of us, we see God's value even if our children are not safe. As hard as that is to say, we see his value even if safety is not achieved in the way that we would define it. We see God's value even when money is tight or when we miss paying certain bills. Even if a lover is lost or never found, we see God's esteem and supreme value because he is supremely valuable. None of these is central. None is primary because nothing and no one is more valuable than God. God ought to be our deepest affection. And when we begin to consider these things, I think it's revealed that we have a sly self-love. It's sly, church. Laced and covered with a lot of really good things that no one would ever question. It's great to want children. It's good to want to steward resources. It's good to desire romantic affection. And yet we place ourselves the central. In other words, we mask a love for God in a deep and abiding love of self. Paul knew this, and when Paul knew something, he didn't mince words. And so I would just ask that you buckle up, because this is going to be hard for us. Look at verse 28. Remember, Paul is speaking to the elders in Ephesus, bringing them to Miletus, encouraging them before he departs. He says this, Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Here's how they have to care for the church. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. With really sobering clarity, Paul reaffirms, this is not your church. This is not your church. This is not the elders' church. This is a church of Jesus purchased with his blood. However, by the Spirit, Paul knows, and as he's reaffirmed, he's entrusted the care of this church, the oversight of these particular men, these elders, and so he gives them two warnings. The first one, fierce wolves are coming. It's kind of ominous, right? Who are these wolves? They're members and attenders of the local church. People who would come in with their own agenda 
People who would come in and want to parse out the glory of Jesus and use the church for their own ends, their own desires. Now, you might think, well, I'm coming to church. I'm not trying to, like, start a ministry or make this thing, like, the way I want. Yes, but are you coming here hoping that God will somehow bless you and then give you those children, give you that money, and give you that romantic affection that you desire? Coming and making the bride of Christ something to your ends and your self-love and not to the love and affection and surrender of Jesus. That's what goes on in our hearts. Here's what's really comfortable. It's really awesome to talk about the sin out there. It's really hard to talk about the sin in here as the church, in my heart, what's going on right now, this week, today, and likely tomorrow, should the Lord tarry. Fierce wolves are coming, and so Paul instructs the elders, watch them. Pay careful attention. So what this means, when we walk through a discipleship plan or a restoration at church in the square as an elder team, we are trying our very best to live in a manner worthy of the calling that God has given us through Acts 20, to make sure that we are caring well for the flock, even if that means because of unrepentant sin and divisiveness, we suggest you should probably go somewhere else. You're just not going to be happy here. It's okay. Church in the square is not the church for everybody. Nor is the church down the street or the church around the block or in the next city. We thank God for that. I think it's one of the reasons that he allows and plants and starts many churches. So that he would see his kingdom expand all over the place. Therefore, we are called to care well for the members and attenders, but ultimately not trust them, but entrust them to Jesus. And to make sure that we are caring for the whole flock, not just one individually. That they may get what they want out of this church. You're not going to get everything you want out of this church, and neither am I, because that's not the point. This is where elders go, yeah, that's right. All these people coming in, just back up because we got ideas, we got to do stuff. And then verse 30, and from among your own selves. Paul flips the script as he's really good at doing. He says, don't just watch out for others, watch out for you. He says, twisted things will come from the elders. Paul is saying that the elders are not immune to glory thievery. They desire to steal this for themselves. The hunger and desire for fame is alive and well in my heart, and I can be tempted to use this stage, this church, to make a name for myself and not a name unto Jesus, who is the only one deserving of fame and honor and glory. That's what Paul is telling me. That's what he's teaching my heart, not as an example, but as a confession. Those things are alive and well in me, and what this scripture teaches me is, Jason, don't trust yourself. Don't go along with vain glories of this world. And essentially use the flock as if they're your own people. In other words, both of these issues, I think, stem from valuing our lives and ourselves more than we value God. When we value our own lives, we seek power, opportunity to ensure that our dreams come true rather than laying down every ounce of power and opportunity we can for the work and grace and power of Jesus to pervade and prevail in people's lives. See, everything that we build our life upon, except Jesus, will crack, crumble, and fall because it was never meant to be foundational. It's using elements that are not strong enough. It is using things that were never meant to be. Thinking again of John Dixon's definition, when we don't forego our status but make it central, when we don't deploy our resources but hold on to them in greed, when we do not use influence for others, but only ourselves, we lose status, we lose resources, and we lose influence. Whatever you seek to make central will hurt you and it, and you will lose both in the long run. This is what Jesus says. But if you try to find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you will find it. 
In order to safeguard the church, Paul is instructing the elders, watch for others and watch yourself. Verse 31 and 32. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. As always, as usual, the gospel gives us incredible hope. When we find ourselves building our lives on a lie and seeing it crumble and fall, here comes Paul with this wonderful reminder of your persistent inheritance. That, you know, when we fall short and when we begin to worship lesser gods, God is so gracious in that he doesn't dispose of us, he corrects us, he reveals truth to us, and he welcomes us back into a sure foundation. In other words, when we have been prideful and arrogant, he invites us to be humble again. How does he do this? Well, through Jesus. See, Jesus' humility and his humble work, we see that Jesus is humble. But what does make Jesus humble? You see, the only person fit for his own glory, for his own worth, for his own value, for his own prestige, for his own honor, laid it all down for the glory of the Father and for your sake and mine. Paul summarizes this ethic in the generosity of Jesus. Look at verse 33. I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who him, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, when we're humble, we live generously. And when we are generous, we lay down our lives for those who are in need. That's what Paul did in Ephesus. This is what Jesus did for Paul's sake. This is what Jesus has done for all of us by grace through faith. See, Paul's example for the Ephesian elders is born out of the transformative work or the humility of Jesus. And the humility of Jesus, we must see this, is understood when we focus on two particular things about who Jesus is. Both will be summarized in Philippians chapter 2. So would you turn there with me to the right if you're still in Acts? If you're not in Acts, you're wrong. You need to stay in Acts. Acts chapter 20, flip to the right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, to the right a couple of chapters. Philippians chapter 2. Two primary ways that we'll see here the Apostle Paul in writing to the church in Philippi. He says this in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The first thing we need to understand about the humility of Jesus is exhibited in the incarnation. The Son of God took a new form but did not cease to be God. He became a man with all of the limitations, if you will, but also with a new role. See, being born in the likeness of men is completely humbling for the Son of God who is eternally God. See, in becoming a human being, he now becomes knowable in a fresh way. He's physical and visible He also becomes soft, which means he becomes killable, Jesus does when he takes on flesh. Whereas in eternity past, he is mysterious, impervious, untouchable. In the incarnation, he humbled himself to the point of being able to be killed. And that's the second point of his humility. Look at verse 8 in Philippians chapter 2. 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is humble in the incarnation, but his humility is further exemplified in the cross. There's a dual meaning when we speak about the cross because on the cross, Jesus demonstrates an ultimate value of obedience to God. In other words, his humility is taking on the will of his Father, not exerting his own will upon his Father. Secondly, we see the humility of Jesus that when he honors his heavenly Father, he is doing so to the point of incredible cost, his own life. He's not obeying God when it's easy. He's not obeying God when it's comfortable. He's obeying God to the point of fulfilling his word all the way to death, dying for us. His death is not arbitrary. It's a fulfillment of God's word. Jesus suffered on the tree and gave us the ultimate picture and power of humility. So in other words, in the incarnation, Jesus relates to us. He lowers himself to our state. In the incarnation, he then dies in our place, condescending himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He humbled him. He deployed all of his heavenly resources for your good and for mine. Through Christ, therefore, we can kill pride because on the cross, Jesus put it to death. This is what happens personally. But through the course of history, we've actually seen humility move into the foreground and pride into the background. Did you know that we as a people did not always favor humility over pride collectively? In the Greco-Roman world, pride and honor was something that was quite central, and the cross of Christ didn't just change your heart, cannot just change your heart, it's changed the course of human history. Dennis goes on in his treatise on humility to say, interestingly, what probably established humility as a Western virtue was not Jesus' persona exactly, or even his teaching, but rather his execution. Or more correctly, his followers' attempt to come to grips with his execution. You see, because Jesus died for his people in a world of self-love, that world was completely changed. In a world of self-honor, self-preservation, Jesus gives himself in humility. We, therefore, need to stop valuing ourselves and not only showing pride but leading to more pride. We can come to Jesus, the God who authored humility through our world, and we can be made new and right as those who value him supremely. And when we value Jesus, we know who we are, and no cost is too great for his glory. Notice the value bestowed on Jesus now in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you are drunk on self-accomplishment, self-adulation, self-love, personal supreme autonomy, bow to the immeasurable worth of Jesus. He'll give you true value. He'll tell you who you really are. And let, let's be honest, you can humble yourself now in coming to Jesus, or one day you will be humbled by Jesus. Every knee will bow. Everyone will be made humble. The invitation of the gospel is to be humbled today. When we have an accurate view of ourselves, we become a people that God's called us to be. Here's how this scene concludes in verse 36 back in Acts chapter 20. So flip back to the left. Acts chapter 20, verse 36. 
And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was, a, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. To be sure, this is an incredibly tender moment where there's weeping, there's crying, there's praying. There's like this, don't go, we love you, we're going to miss you. Can you imagine this kind of loving church? That someone's going to say, I'm going to go be imprisoned. I'm going to go and experience this kind of opposition. And instead of convincing him not to do that, because we value the same thing as the church, we merely weep because it's like, man, it's just goodness. We just love you. We just love you. We're going to miss you. You know, there's some people in this room we don't miss. We don't miss when we're away from them. It's because we don't know what true value is. It's because we don't know what we're truly to be about. We have so fallen in love with ourselves that we have begun to impress upon our way of valuing things to others. And if they're not like us, we don't value them. We see what begins to take shape when we all rightly value God supremely. We are united together as his people, missionally, in our worship. He begins to do a work in us, breaking down pride. There's no competition. There's not like, I want to be the one who writes the New Testament. I want to be the Apostle Paul. Nobody's doing that. They're like, this is what God said. This is not what it's about. It's about Jesus, his name being famous. And so Paul could write these words to young Timothy. Just hear this from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 19, thinking about the tenderness and the way Acts 20 has concluded. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. May that be true of us, church. Bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We have built our lives on a shaky foundation of our pride, of materialistic things that are here one minute and gone the next, of a kind of self-love that is a glory unto ourselves. And so we thank you that when we wrongly valued ourselves supremely, you showed us what supreme value looks like in the face and person and work of Jesus. So God, forgive us, transform our hearts to be those who value self supremely, to value you supremely, that we might become a church that follows and obeys you despite the cost, that you might be glorified among the nations. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.